Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Church. My name's Nathan. I'm happy to see you here. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. It'd be a really good day to have a Bible today because I'm going to be kind of moving all around the New Testament, looking at several portions that are especially challenging, I think, in regard to the topic that we're going to discuss today. So raise your hand and someone will give you a Bible. And don't worry about if you're not super familiar with it because I'll give you page numbers. I'm going to read out of this Bible today as well and I'll help you find stuff so that it's uh, workable. Also, if you are near the aisle and have a basket under your seat and can pass that down, that'd be great. There's cards in the basket. And if um, this is your first time here, you have a prayer request or any kind of a comment you'd like to share, you can stick that on a card. We'll collect them after I speak um, when we receive the offering this morning. All right. Good. Well, welcome. I'm happy to see you here. And uh, our hope, of course, is that this is a challenging experience, that it's an encouraging experience, that uh, as we kind of enter into a season in our culture where there's a lot of moving around and people on vacations that we would be able to embrace the fullness of community together and we'll come together be grounded here in this uh, this experience of worshiping God on the Sabbath day on the first day of the week remembering the core of who we are as people of the resurrection so uh, my hope as Josh mentioned is that our hearts would be wide open this morning be able to hear a challenging word and uh, and be willing to be confronted by it and asking God for the power, it's always by God's power that we ever put into practice what the Word calls us to do. All right, so last week and today and for the next couple Sundays, I'm going to be teaching on the doctrine of the church. And this is a doctrine or a belief that's especially difficult for us to embrace. The doctrine of the church, especially hard for us to embrace for two reasons. One, we mostly see evidence that the doctrines or that the belief that we have, this claim that we have in the church, is actually false. We mostly see evidence that what we claim to believe is false, not true. In other words, we say that the church is a community of transformation, but we rarely see lasting change. That's what I mean by that. We say that that the church is God's chosen instrument for the redemption and the restoration of the world, but we often only see little teeny glimpses of that happening. Mostly we see a, a culture that is largely ignoring the church, and they're largely ignoring the church because if we're honest, the church is in a lot of ways just pretty irrelevant, uh, pretty powerless to make any kind of change. So it can be really difficult to embrace a robust view of the church when so much of what we hear about the church, so much of what we read about the church, so much of what we even see in the church, at least in our culture, is frankly pretty pitiful. A second reason that belief in the church can be really difficult to embrace is that most of us have been deeply shaped by a culture that sees the church as not really necessary. Uh, We don't value the church in our culture. Uh, So much so that even spiritual people, even Christian people, would have a hard time saying the church is essential. Uh, We don't see it as necessary. We can often even see it as sort of a, a hassle or kind of pointless. So forget about the rest of culture for a second. It's we ourselves, even people like many of you and myself who participate in church every week, we sometimes even struggle to understand and have a hard time articulating why church matters. We, we might say, well, it's encouraging to me, uh, it's a place where I feel like I have friends, uh, which is fine, or it's, it's helpful once in a while, but I think that generally speaking, we are a long way from seeing the church as critical, as essential. Now, the specific belief about the church that I want to teach on today is especially 
It's especially critical uh, in light of the difficulties that I've just pointed out. Because this specific belief about the church that I'm talking about today is what people point to as proof that the church is fake, as proof that the church is pointless, it doesn't really make a difference. And the specific thing I want to teach about the church today is also what people point to as the reason the church is true and the reason the church is real and the reason the church makes uh, a difference, that it is God's chosen instrument for rescuing and restoring the world. In other words, both sides are pointing to the same thing as evidence for their differing views. Okay, And here's the belief. In the words of the Apostles' Creed, it's the communion of saints. Now, people, when they're arguing, they probably don't actually use that phrase, the communion of saints, but that's what both sides are pointing to. It might sound kind of funny to us because it's one of the lines in the creed that you might not even notice as you recite the creed unless you're specifically confronted with it. You might say as you're getting towards the end of the Apostles' Creed, yeah, we believe in the communion of saints without even really thinking about it too much. Um, Does it really fit in the creed? Is it really an essential Christian belief? Does it really belong right alongside the belief in like God as creator, the belief in the the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus? Are we really saying that the communion of saints is as important as the ascension of Christ, that it's an essential? I mean, it almost not, we believe in the communion of saints. It almost sounds like we believe in potlucks. I mean, it sounds very bland. It sounds very mild, very non-confrontational. Why? I mean, what does this even mean? What are we talking about? What is the diff, what difference does this make? Well, I want, to, I want to argue this morning that it doesn't make any difference at all if we don't have a, a beginning of an understanding, if we don't start to grasp the fullness of what the church has taught about this core Christian belief, the communion of saints. In Latin, the part of this creed, or this part of the creed is just two words in Latin, uh, communio sanctorum, communio, communion, and then the sacred is what sanctorum means, the set-apart the holy ones. That's what it means to be a saint. So Christians are those who are in Christ. Christians are those who follow Jesus as Lord. In the New Testament, those are the people who are called saints. Paul often addresses his letters to the saints in Ephesus or somewhere else. Paul often wraps up his his letters by saying, greet the saints. And he's not talking about greet the super spiritual. He's not saying that. He's saying, greet the baptized. Greet those who are part of the Christian community. In in fact, much of what Paul writes to the church assumes that the communion of saints is going to involve fellowship with people who are not acting very saintly, (laughs) okay? Which is part, part of why he writes quite a bit of what he writes. We believe in the communion of saints, And it's not the super spiritual. It's everybody who's a part of the community, including those who aren't acting like saints uh, in in a typical sort of way. There's always been a wide range of variety of of maturity, a wide range of devotion, a wide range of commitment, a wide range of experience of holiness among the saints. It's a messy group. We're a messy group, right? Um, We're all pilgrims. We're on a journey God's not done with any of us yet. God's not done with the person you're sitting next to yet. So reserve judgment because God's not done with them yet. God's not done with me yet. I'm more mature spiritually than I was when I was 30. 
at 42. And I expect and am planning to be much more mature at age 50 than I am now. I want to continue to grow in this journey. But it's, it's what it is, though. It's a journey. And it's difficult, and there's stops and fits and bursts, and it's a struggle. By saints, the writers of the creed simply mean all those who are part of the Christian community, all who have embraced, are embracing, will embrace the grace of Christ to be part of the body of Christ. That's really powerful. The Christian concept of saints is really, really powerful, but even more powerful, I think, of the two concepts is what the church has meant by communion. By the time the creed is written, it's written in Latin. It's written about 200 years after the New Testament. New Testament's written in Greek, primarily. The Greek word influencing the church's view of community is this word koinonia. And if koinonia were a truck, it would have a huge bed because it would be able to carry a whole lot of significance. It's one of these words that just packs a punch. It still shows up in our culture in various ways. It's used to um, depict an unusual level of commitment, uh, an unusual level of involvement or community with others. In fact, there's the koinonia house, some of you might be aware of, in Loomis, which is a residential home for kids who don't have a home, we're talking about a level of, of care and belonging that is exceptional, right? Koinonia, it's a really, really powerful word. So um, if we begin to see just how potent the church's view of community is, we can begin to get a, 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 a glimpse of what, it's, what this phrase, communion of, saint, communion of saints, means. Here's a little bit of what the early church meant when they used the word Koinonia, this root word of the idea of community. It was used to describe any partnership, um, sorry, any partnership in which there were pooled resources for a mutual benefit. It was used to describe marriage as a lifelong union, the word koinonia. It was used to describe a social or a political arrangement that was for a larger goal or purpose, like the building of a city. It was considered the foundation of true friendship, mutual giving, mutual sharing, for something bigger. It was never about the individual. Right? This was always about something more than. So in short, by saying we believe in the communion of saints, uh, early Christians were saying we believe in caring and sharing. We believe in caring and sharing. And I realize that could sound a little trite. It could almost sound a little cute. It even rhymes. Uh, but before you uh, push back on that, I want you to realize what this does mean and what this doesn't mean. By saying we believe in caring and sharing, the early church was not saying we believe, you know what, we suggest when you feel like it, occasionally, if it's convenient for you, help people out a little bit. That's not what the early church w w was saying. They were not saying by, by saying we believe in caring and sharing that, that this is something we want to embrace for, oh, maybe two, three weeks right before Christmas. This is not what they were saying. Okay, the fact that this phrase, we believe in the communion of saints, is part of the hundred-word Apostles' Creed, emphasizes what is already made really clear in New Testament Scripture, which is this. This is essential. The communion of saints is essential to being Christian. Okay? We care for each other. That's what we do. We share stuff. It's critical. It's a mark of the true church. Or put another way, if it's not happening, then a critical component of the true church is missing. 
You could even argue that if caring and sharing is not a part of this group's experience, they are not a Christian group, truly. They could certainly not be, um, not be called, in any kind of accurate way, the church. It's not the only critical mark of the church. There, in fact, everything we've talked about so far in this Apostles' Creed series is considered an essential element of the church. All of the beliefs... Right? But it strikes me that so much of my theological training was focused on uh, the theological doctrines about like God as creator, and Jesus as man and God, and the role of the Holy Spirit. And we just talked and talked and talked about these core doctrines, and we wrote and wrote and wrote about them, and I still talk about them, and I still write about them, because they're so critical. Who is God? How does he involve himself in the lives of people? And yet, I need to uh, basically admit a shameful lack of attention to the, dro- to the doctrines of the church, to the way this is actually practically played out, because these doctrines of the church are also essential. In other words, if a, if a group is not preaching If you go to a church and they're not preaching the divinity and the humanity of Jesus, then I would say, and I'd have the historic church to back me up, that's not a Christian church. Well, I wonder if we we, we, um, held ourselves to the same standard of this belief. If we looked at our church and said, okay, is there caring going on and is there sharing of resources going on? Would we kind of pass that standard? And I don't mean sharing and caring on a conceptual level. I don't mean like, oh, wow, that's a good idea. I mean actually and specifically and intentionally. Like there's a line in my budget for sharing with others. This is a level of practicality that we're we're talking about. When you read in the New Testament, it's not a stretch to say uh, that both worshiping Jesus as Messiah and sharing your money with other Christians is essential to being part of the church. Let me look at a couple examples of this in Scripture. I want to give you a general example and then um, a specific one. Look with me at, at the book of Acts. Um, it's in the New Testament. It's after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Acts chapter 2. If I can get to it, I will tell you the page. 759. Okay, here's a general description of what the early Christian church was like. Acts chapter 2, we'll look at verse uh, 42. It's on the bottom right-hand corner of the page. Luke writes this. He says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And then get this, look at verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. The Lord added to their number every day those who were being saved. Followed down to uh, chapter 4, over on the next page, verse 32. Acts 4, 32. Another general description. How would you just generally describe the Christians? Well, Luke does it twice here in the opening part of the book. Verse 32 of chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. 
And this is just totally challenging to me. Listen to this. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And then, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. How could that be? Well, from time to time, Luke writes, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. And then he gives a specific example. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, who later he travels with Paul, means the son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So you've got this statement in the middle of that passage about the power and the effectiveness of the testimony of the apostles who are preaching the resurrection of Jesus, and it's like a sandwich right in between these powerful statements about there's no personal property. Everything is considered part of the community's property, and consequently, there's no needy people. There's just no needy people. I mean, it's really challenging, and it totally confronts our paradigm. So there's a general example of what communion of saints looked like. Now, let's look at a specific example quickly. Turn to your right to a a letter called 2 Corinthians, chapter 8. It's on page 806. This is Paul writing to a church in a city called Corinth, page 806, or 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is a specific example. Gosh, what did that actually look like? Well, here, here's a specific example. Paul is writing to a church, and he's raising money. He's going to visit them soon, but he's, he's, his, his advance uh, to his, his visit is a letter, and this is what he says. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. There's quite a recipe there. Uh, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us, get this, for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Go to the next column up high, look at verse 7. He's talking now to the Corinthians, and he's complimenting them, and he says, but since you excel in everything, you excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love that we have kindled in you, he says, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. And then a little bit farther down to verse 10, Paul says, and here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. He's still talking about this offering he's trying to raise money for Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eagerness, your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Um, He goes on and says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Trying to give you a specific example of how this is working out. He says, the goal is equality. As it is written, no one who gathered much 
did not have too much. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little as a reference to when manna was falling from heaven. Some of us, when you hear the word, the goal is equality, you're like, oh my gosh, that is freaking me out. Because of our political climate today, right? Understand that there is no like governing system that is exacting equality by taking others down in order to lift others up. That's not it at all. This is seen as a privilege, right? This church and this church, this church is in a season of difficulty. This church is in a season of plenty. The goal, Paul says, among the churches is equality, right? So that's a little bit about what it looked like, what the communion of saints idea looked like. I'm trying to do is lift this phrase that might just sound totally bland like a potluck and, and bring it into like vivid clarity so you see just how confrontational and challenging, frankly, this idea is. It's no wonder that the doctrine of the church has been so hard for us. As I said a few minutes ago, as a rule, we don't see it happening very well. This is not what the church is known for, giving money to help other people out. And what's more, and I think this is the harder part, we are so individualistic that the idea of sharing our stuff, the idea of sharing our money with others, even in our own community, let alone other churches, it sounds radical to us. Right? Most of us will gladly chip in when there's a tragedy. Most of us will help out with a 20 or a couple when somebody's house has burned down. But listen to me, friends. A vast majority of us do not even give 10% of our income to the general needs of this community. Not even 10%. Vast majority. We are so far away from even approaching what the historic Christian community has, has believed about the communion of saints, the level to which we are to share life and discover Jesus together, the, the, what, what the church meant by sharing and caring, which we might write off as a silly little Sunday school phrase. We have no idea what that really looks like when you compare us to the early church. And what's crazy about this is that this is only, we're only talking about the local church. There's so much more about this idea, this ancient Christian idea of the communion of saints. It's way more than I can talk about this morning, but let me just shine a flashlight down the road and show you how far this goes so you can begin to see where this leads. Because the Christian belief in the communion of, of saints is not only radical in the depth of sharing and caring, the degree to which your stuff is made available for others. It's also pretty radical in the breadth how far-reaching this, this, how wide it goes. It begins with the local community. It always must begin in the local community because it's the local community that confronts us with the reality of other people's needs, right? You can't hide, especially in a small church like this, you can't hide. Your faith will be pushed to the point of practicality or it will just be frustrated by the local community. This is, it's in this circle where you're challenged to actually put your faith into practice on a really practical level. Um, and, and, but this, this idea of communion of saints, it, it goes beyond the local, just the circle of the local, and it extends beyond that to the greater Christian community, churches across the whole world. This is very clear in what we just read in Paul's writings, where a church in one city, oh, I forgot to tell you this, the reason that they were raising that offering, I totally forgot to read the Romans passage. So Romans 15, 25, if you want to write it down. Paul says what he's raising the offering for. He's raising the offering from all these Gentile churches, all these non-Jewish Christian churches, 
to support the poor in Jerusalem, like the Mecca, the home base. I shouldn't have said Mecca. That's mixing religions. But you know what I'm talking about, right? So it's where the church started, Jerusalem, where the poor are under duress. And so Paul's going out to all these new baby churches and raising money, and they are gladly giving to the poor at the mothership. It's really fascinating, right? That's Romans 15 and 25, which I forgot to mention. So it starts local. It goes worldwide, right? This is what we see in Paul's letters, really practical examples. Now listen, modern charity seeks to mirror something like this, but they totally miss they, us, whatever. We miss the point. In other words, the motive of much of modern charity is totally different. Here's the motive in modern charity. I have money. You have an earthquake. I will help you. It's not bad but I will help you with my money to fix your earthquake. Here's the Christian distinction. We're part of the same family. Okay? Whole different starting point. We're part of the same family. We have the same father. Of course, your needs are my needs. Your sorrows are my sorrows. Your joys are my my joys. My money is your money. Your money is my money. It's a whole different starting point. I was at a graduation party this last week for one of our students in our church who has just this big, big family. And so there were a lot of people there from their family, and there were other people there who just kind of become part of the family, aren't even actually related. And there was one point where we took a big picture, and I was just noting, I'm like, this is such a blessing. Oh, it's such a blessing. I was, I was marked and uh, impressed by what a gift it is. I counted 15 households that are part of this one family in this one picture. That's beautiful. That's a level of strength and security and, and, and identity that is powerful. And that's what the church is supposed to be. We have one father, right? We're all part of the same family. All right, so the communion of saints, saints starts local. It goes worldwide. And the communion of saints extends even farther. And here's where it gets a little mysterious. Here's what the writer of the Hebrews says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Get rid of that stuff and let's run with perseverance. In other words, let's not give up. Let's run with perseverance the race marked out before us. In other words, there are all these people in our communion, in our community, in our fellowship, in our extended family. What are they doing? They're cheering us on. And some of those who are part of that great cloud of witnesses that the writer of Hebrews writes about in Hebrews 12, the writer actually names in Hebrews 11, and they are people who lived and died a long time ago. What on earth is that about? Okay, it's about the Christians believing that by communion of saints, it means that you and I are sharing with one another. It means that, that we, Christians in California, we maybe are sharing with Christians in Iran. But we're called to a level of sharing, some sort of mystical and very real sense. We are sharing and caring with Abraham. Okay, we're sharing and caring with Moses, with St. Peter, with St. Paul, with your Jesus-loving grandma who died several years ago, but whose memory is fueling you on to not give up and not let go of your faith, but to continue to walk with Jesus. Even though she's not here in the same way that we would consider you know, present with us, she's still, according to the writer of Hebrews, a part of this great cloud of witnesses, part of what we are communing with. It goes that far down the road, right? So we've talked about local communion, worldwide communion, very real 
but mystical sort of fellowship with those who are beyond, at least in terms that we uh, typically understand it, and it extends even farther still. In the words of Hebrews chapter 11, to ministering spirits sent by God to serve those who are being saved. Jesus himself says that angels are glad and rejoice over one sinner who repents and comes back to God. There's this interaction. There's this relational support that happens even with some other created being we would refer to as as angels. And then finally, and most significantly, this communion of saints that, that the creed refers to extends to include communion with God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Okay? Unlike other world religions that are basically trying to just not tick God off, Christianity actually teaches that there can be an intimate, honest relationship between people and God. And in fact, that that's what Jesus came to restore. That's the whole reason he came, so that we could have this actual intimate relationship. Jesus prays that we would know God like he knows God, that we would be one, that he, the disciples, would be one with him, like he's one with the God, the Father, that we would all be one. Paul compares our relationship with God to a marriage, right? To a human marriage. Deep, true, complete, caring, sharing, unbroken, never-ending communion between God and God's saints. That's a beautiful belief, really. That is a beautiful belief. What a remarkable doctrine. What an amazing and promising reality to embrace. Do we fall short? All the time. We fall short of the communion of saints. And when we do, it's frustrating It can even be harmful. Some of us are carrying wounds because the communion of saints has failed to live up to its calling. And yet, is there ever a vision? Could there have ever been a vision that is is more worth trying and more worth trying again and even worth dying for than the New Testament vision of the the church? The, The true fellowship of the believers, a new kind of family coming around this core redeemer, this common father, this communion of saints. It is, fan- it is beautiful. It is a fantastic vision that is the, the earth, the world's hope for restoration, that we would actually live into the fullness of what we claim to believe as the church. Right? So let's pray for grace to step into this and to become this on a level that is practical, tangible, reliable, intentional, demonstrable, powerful. So that when people see us, they would say, well, that's, that's a church that's actually worth not writing off, right? There's a church, there's a community that I actually heard there are examples within that church where they are caring and sharing on a level that's very significant, makes a difference in the world. Let's pray together. I pray, Father, for grace, uh, your convicting grace to rattle our presuppositions about what it means to have stuff, what it means to be a part of the church, what it is that is ours and what has really just been entrusted to us in order to make a bigger difference in the world. 
I pray that more and more we would be characterized by the beliefs of the Christian church and not um, kind of a me-first perennial value of our culture. I pray that there would be no needy people in this church because others would recognize and fill needs and that then there would be such a health and a development and a transformation that later on those who have received help would be enabled in their times of plenty to give to those who are in need. God, may we embrace, experience, cheer on, uh, believe for a robust communion of the saints. God, may this church be healthy. May it make a difference in the world for your glory. Amen. Amen. Friends, would you stand up with me? Um, Quick comment. Every Sunday we do this. It's called the, the passing of the peace. And historically, this always comes after the word and before communion. It comes after the word so that we have been challenged to embrace the teachings of Jesus. It, becomes, it comes before communion so that we can, with a clear conscience and an open heart, receive forgiveness or the sign thereof, um, having offered that to other people. In other words, it we're out of order if we go forward to receive grace and forgiveness from God and aren't willing to share it with other people, if there's some problem that we have, if there's some division, if there's some breaking or severing of communion, community, this time is intended to be a place where you go to somebody and you say, yeah, we're at peace, right? Peace to you, right? Rick, peace to you. Maybe we can't fix our problem in three seconds, but we could say, let's have coffee this week, and right now, I want to be at peace. That was just a random example. I'm totally at peace with the ashes. Thank God right now, right? All right, so let's take a moment and greet one another, say good morning, embrace one another as part of uh, the community this morning, and then we'll come back together in a minute, and we'll, we'll worship and share communion. May the peace of Christ be always with you. Thank you.